Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner and Claire Kaplan. Uh, we are so pleased to have with us a guest today, Kelly Sundberg, who can share her own journey, um, a bit about her writing, an extraordinary life story. Um, Claire, could you start us with a little bit of a background and trigger for our listeners? Certainly. Sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Please reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much. And we are so pleased, Kelly Sunberg, to have you with us uh, for our session today so that our listeners can learn a little bit more about you. Would you kindly share a bit of your bio? Yeah, I am a single mom. I'm a professor of English and creative writing. Um, I have a PhD in English and creative writing from Ohio University and an MFA from West Virginia University. And I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming to your microphone um, to share your story and journey. And as we always do, we like to learn, you know, that was a great start to your bio. But, you know, what brings you to your mic and in, in, in terms of survivorship and how did how did that all unfold in your life? Yeah, I think um, so. I grew up in rural Idaho in a very small town. It was a town of 3,000, very isolated. The nearest Walmart was two and a half hours away over the Continental Divide, a very traditional town with really clear gender roles. So I definitely was raised always kind of having a sense of, of what a woman's role in a relationship was supposed to be. I didn't think that I had had believed in that until I found myself in my marriage. When I was in my 20s, I met someone. Our relationship moved very quickly. He uh, told me everything that I wanted to hear, and I really thought that I had found the right person. And then I got pregnant, and we decided to get married. We got married eight months after having met each other, so it was very rushed. And... um, The first year was just really stressful. We were just really still getting to know each other. We had a child and, and I didn't notice that he was emotionally abusive because in my household that I grew up in, my mom was somewhat abusive. So I, I kind of had a high threshold already for what I would tolerate. And then he was physically abusive a year into the relationship. And by then I just, um, believed that I deserved it. I didn't feel like I did. I knew how to leave the marriage. I thought about it. My mom took me out into the backyard and said, you shouldn't leave. I've seen it on the other side. It's not better on the other side. I was still in college. I, I didn't have an income of my own. And, and also I really loved him. I just wanted to highlight some things that I noted, you know, growing up in a rural area, as you, as you think about it, I think you said, I didn't believe that I bought into it, but then here I was in this abusive relationship and I was a little bit, um, wanted to like jump back because you then said the abuse didn't start until a year in. So 
just to make sure I was clear, you know, it sounds like when the marriage began and the relationship began, it was, would you consider it healthy? And you, and how old were you then? You said you met him in college? Yeah, I was older than a typical college student, though. I was 26 when I met him. Um, no, I wouldn't say the relationship was healthy. The physical abuse didn't begin until a year in. The emotional abuse, I would say, began um, right after we got married. I don't think the emotional abuse began until we were married. What do you think, then, then what what changed about getting married and how long were you together before you got married? We were together for eight months before we got married. So we got married very soon. And I just think what changed is that he felt more confident that I wouldn't leave. I also just think he was only going to make it so long before, before those characteristics came out. Is that looking back? Yeah. And, and before Claire, just, I would say, is that hindsight's perfect or you suspect, was there a gut part of you that thought that all along? I mean, this is all hindsight. No, I didn't. I, at the time I didn't even recognize it as emotional abuse. If I had, I would have left, but, but I didn't. It happened very slowly. I think sometimes abuse happens very quickly and sometimes it happens slowly. And in my situation, it happened very slowly. So it was, you know, there's the the metaphor of like a frog in water that's brought to boiling won't jump out. A frog that jumps into boiling water will jump out. And I, the water was brought to boiling while I was in it. So there are, you know, a lot of women have that experience where it kind of creeps up. And I'm wondering when, when do you recall when you first had an inkling that, wait a minute, this isn't quite right, but wouldn't, maybe you didn't identify it as abusive, but where you just didn't feel things were okay. Well, a year in, he started physically intimidating me, like backing me into corners um, throwing things, breaking things. And I had a, a counselor I was seeing at the university and I told her, and she told me that was domestic violence. And she gave me a flyer from the domestic violence center on campus. And I didn't really believe her because he hadn't hit me, but I thought that if I told him that she'd said that, maybe that would, that he would realize what he was doing was wrong. And, and when I told him, he just, turned it around on me and said, I can't believe you're calling me abusive. And I ended up apologizing by the end of, of that conversation. So, so that would probably be the beginning, but I don't think I identified it as abuse until the end of the marriage, which, which happened eight years after that. And also I want to go back to one more thing you said, Kelly, when you, when you think about, um, trying to use the the therapist, the counseling as a way to have him recognize, you know, indirectly challenge him. Um, Even going back to when the the emotional abuse then changed into the physical abuse and you described, you know, things breaking all around you. I think for our listeners, some of us are always trying to make sense of what did I do something to trigger or was there a trigger for my abuser and how did I, I sit with either feeling responsible or somewhat to blame. And, you know, you were clearly so accomplished and I'm sure you've analyzed these kinds of questions 
going back to those moments when he was physically and had crossed from emotional abuse to physical abuse, what was the escalating and, or not that one's better or worse than another, but what, what do you recall about those moments that, you know, was it a bad work day? Did he, did you do something that annoyed him? Like what I'm thinking about when someone starts abusing, what, what sense do you make of that? The first time he was physically abusive was two years into the relationship. And I, it happened on Christmas Eve. Um, a lot of, I think women who've been through abusive relationships know that holidays can be real triggers. We were stressed already. We didn't have a lot of money. We, we had to go to his family's and, um, Christmas day is my birthday. There was just a lot of expectation around it. And I don't remember what we thought about, but I remember he went into a rage and, and pinned me down on the ground. And honestly, at that point, I, I looked at him and I said, just do it because I knew it was coming. I'd known it was coming. And I thought, I really believed that once he hit me, he would realize he'd gone too far and it would change. And, and that's what it seemed like. Um, because he was very apologetic, deeply apologetic. And I thought, okay, this is it. This will be the change. And then it didn't happen again for six months. So, so I really did believe that that change was there, but of course it happened again and, and then again, and then with increasing frequency. So it sounds like what you're describing is almost a classic situation of, um, Often people call it a cycle, but really it's almost a spiral because it gets tighter and tighter. The idea that there's this building of tension and then there's some kind of explosion and then there's apologies. Was he really um, very sweet after these these violent episodes? Oh, he was so sweet and he would cry and say that he was so ashamed of himself. I would I would end up comforting him a good amount of the time. And then he would bring me flowers and lavish attention on me. And we had a young child. And at that point I was in graduate school and stressed. And honestly, the post abuse times were, were so nice and so wonderful that I would always just think, okay, well, this is great. And, and during the abusive moments, I would disassociate so much it's like when I look back on that time, the really wonderful times were the times that I thought were real and the abuse, I thought those were just anomalies. And I, it sounds now when I say that I can't believe that I could have ever believed anything like that, but I was really not informed about domestic violence in that way. I mean, I'd seen the cycle of violence, but I didn't understand all of the nuances of it. We didn't have I don't even think the term gaslighting was out there in popular culture at that time. It was just a really different time. And, and I was a feminist and I was also kind of attached to this idea that, that abuse wouldn't happen to me because I was a feminist. I thought I was very strong. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, but sadly it does happen to pe- feminists and all the time. Yes. Yeah. And I actually, and I was strong and that's why I survived it. And, um, 
And I, I think it was my strength that led me to try so many times to repair the relationship. And he did do things. He committed to doing things. He, he got therapy. He, he went to anger management, which of course now I know is counterintuitive for situations of abuse because abuse is not about anger, but he would do actual concrete steps. So for a long time to me, it just felt like, well, he's doing these things. He's going to change. And, and, but I also didn't label it as abuse. I didn't, I didn't tell anyone. And then at the end it was happening quite frequently. And I told a therapist and when I articulated to her that he was being abusive and said it out loud, it was pretty soon after I said the word out loud, it, it was about a month before I actually left. Kelly, I want to talk about two other things. One is your, remember your mom said it's worse out there. Stay with him. Um, I, I don't know. Did, did you, were you, do you have a mother and a father or? Yeah, I do. My parents have been married for over 50 years, I think 53 or 54 years now. Um, they are happily married. My dad is very gentle and very kind and was never at all abusive to my mom and my mom. I love my mom and she's a wonderful person, but she worked night shifts when I was a kid, she was a registered nurse and, and she had extreme mood swings. And so I was accustomed to a certain amount of chaos in a household by the time I entered into my marriage, because my mom oftentimes was really ragey. So how, how do you relate to them now? I mean, what are their, do they appreciate the things you're doing? Are, do they blame themselves at all for saying you should stay in an abusive relationship? Well, we get along great now, but it's definitely been a process. I, my mom, by the end of the, of my marriage was very supportive. She, she really was the, the escalation for me to get out. She, she called the domestic violence shelter in Morgantown, West Virginia, where I was living. And she asked them to talk to me and she made me promise that I would go. And, um, I went and after the same day that I went to that shelter and, the woman showed me the cycle of violence and I, I recognized my situation in it. And something that was interesting that she showed me was that it said sometimes the, the victim will provoke the abuser just to get it over with. And we had gotten into a situation where there were times that I definitely provoked him because I saw it coming, but then I would blame myself because I would think, well, I provoked him. And I realized when I realized that was also part of the cycle it was eye-opening and I left him that day. And so my mom, you know, came around, but it took her a long time. And, and then my dad had a really hard time. My dad, who'd always been my kind of gentle hero, didn't really believe me at first. He thought I was exaggerating and it was very hard for our relationship to recover and took years. And, um, but you know, I've come to realize that was really more about, about my, I, I mean, I can't know why my dad didn't, but I think it was just so hard for him to wrap his head around the fact that that could have happened to his daughter. So he kind of went into a denial about it, but my parents and I have, I mean, it's been almost 10 years. We have a really good relationship now. They're very proud of me. They don't minimize what happened to me. For the most part, I don't talk about it with them though. I mean, my therapist at, at one point said, you need to not talk to your parents about those things. Talk to your friends, but you're, because anytime I tried to talk to my parents about it, I just 
felt minimized or dismissed in some way and it would end up in, in fights. And I don't really talk to my parents at all up at this point about, you know, of course I'm still grappling with the effects of the abuse. I, it happened for almost a decade, but I have come to realize like there are certain places I can turn to support for support for that. And my parents are not my safe place when it comes to the abuse. So we talk about other things and we're close, but it it's, it's a kind of mediated closeness. Thank you, Kelly. That was really helpful. I think a lot of our listeners struggle with how do we, you know, make peace with those who either enable or support or are misguided in any inkling of how to help us. And they, you know, listening to our podcast hopefully is one way more people can learn how to support survivors in their, in their world too. So thank you. That was really helpful. I mean, I can say that my life and my relationship with my parents got much better once I gave up any attachment to, to getting validation from them about that subject. It was something I really had to say like, okay, they're never going to be able to support me the way that I need. And I can still love them and have a relationship with them, but I can't look for that. That's a hard thing, though, you know, when you when you're close to your parents and when you look up to your parents and you you want that kind of validation. Was it therapy that helped you come to that conclusion? Um, how did you make peace with that? It was absolutely therapy. My I had a really great therapist and she said, Kelly, when you think about how emotionally supportive your dad is, well, she said, when you think about how supportive your dad is, what, what, what would be a number on what a scale of one to 10? And I said, eight. And she said, okay, how about emotionally supportive? And I was like a three. Cause he was very supportive in concrete ways, but not so emotionally supportive. And she said, when you talk to your dad, you need to just see a three on his forehead and don't expect anything above a three because he's not capable of it. And that really changed my life. I told my mom that at once and she said, he's more than a three, but it's just, you know, it's not that he's, he's not trying. He, he doesn't see the world in the same way that I do. And how did you handle the the feelings around that and coming to that conclusion? I mean, did you feel disappointed? Did you feel? Oh, I felt incredibly disappointed. I didn't speak to him for months. I didn't think our relationship would ever recover. And that was really heartbreaking to me because my dad had always been my kind of, I was closer to my dad than I was to my mom. And, and one thing I will say is that my mom and I got a lot closer during that time period. And I'm really grateful for that. But yeah, I was brokenhearted and I was devastated. And I went to this writer's workshop and, and the writer Joy Castro gave us a writing prompt and she said to write about the the, the most painful thing that anyone's ever said to you. And initially I wrote something that my ex-husband had said, which was anything, everything bad that you think about yourself, it's all true. He'd said like, and, but honestly, even looking back and even in the moment, I was kind of like, wow, he's really stretching it. Like he's, he's run out of insults to the point that he has to start you know, turning my own fears against me. But then I realized that wasn't it, that the hardest words that that anyone had ever said to me was when my dad had said, Kelly, I just don't know what to believe. And, and I wrote those words down and I have a chapter, you know, I have a memoir about why I stayed in my abusive marriage for so long. And there's a chapter that kind of 
creates a turn in the book and it's called Kelly. I just don't know what to believe. And it's about how painful that was and how hard it was for me to forgive my dad. And, you know, I, I forgave him for myself because I wanted to have a relationship with him, but I, it, it was hard. One of the things that your story is really important, I think to our listeners about is in terms of women of color. And I, I believe you don't call yourself a woman of color, correct? Oh, I'm, I'm white. Yeah, but they don't see you. So they don't, and not that skin color means anything. I just wanted to make sure our, our listeners knew your identity and your pronouns and everything else. So, so if you say I'm white and I've, I'm, I think it's really important to think about your narrative and how you might speak to some of our listeners who are not white, because that, you know, I always say our white skin is already a privilege and seeking help and seeking justice and seeking, um, you know, anyone to listen to our stories. So, so many of our listeners are still silent because I, I can, rem- I can remember so many times speaking, Kelly, I'll be on a, a stage and then off the stage. And if I'm very, very fortunate there, there are, I'm inundated with people who want to talk and I, there's one of the most memorable moments early when I was in my twenties, she said, I will not put another black man in jail. I would rather suffer the abuse of of our relationship. And then there's the economic fear of leaving. So we haven't really talked about that, but if, I don't know if any of the economic, you haven't spoken to that or, you know, fear of, jail time. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I can speak to the experience of, of what women of color go through. I know that I, I know that my skin is a privilege and that I got a lot of support after I left my ex-husband. And, you know, I was in West Virginia when I left him and the domestic violence shelter was very supportive and gave me a referral. I was poor. I was very poor. They gave me a referral to a lawyer from West Virginia legal aid who represented me for free and did they take such good care of me because I was white? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, West Virginia has a pretty deep history of racism, but I, I also don't feel I can speak to that experience from anyone else's perspective. Cause I was white and my ex-husband was white and growing up rural though, I grew up working class and rural and, and the town that I grew up in was um, predominantly Mormon, uh, um, over 70% Mormon, so more Mormon than Salt Lake City. And the culture of the town was extremely regressive and patriarchal, and women were expected to be a certain way, to look a certain way. I never fit into any of that. Um, so you graduate from high school at 18? Yes, And then what happens between 18 and you said you didn't even meet him until 26? Yeah, I mean, a lot happened. I went to college, um, to an honors college, and then I I flunked out of college. So I have ADHD, but I was undiagnosed at that time. And then I just worked a lot of, I worked at a ski resort as a lift operator. I worked for the Forest Service. Gotcha, gotcha. So you do all these myriad jobs and you start at blank school at what age? I started at Boise State University. And you start at Boise State at 20 what? 23. Got it. And then 
your soon-to-be husband, you met him there, correct? Yes. I was um, still in school, and I was finishing my undergraduate degree, and he was getting his Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Got it. So he's younger or older or the same age? He was actually younger than me, but, you know, did education the normal way, like actually went and finished in four years and then went to grad school. Um, So fast forward, you have um, somehow survived this abusive marriage and you're putting two and two together and realized all these things that you had been sort of putting up with, um, been... um, sucked back in during the, the those honeymoon phases um and finally you know the you know, the picture becomes clear to you um that this is an abusive relationship and you you left pretty soon after that did you ever break up with him and go back i mean a lot of people do that they go back and forth i never broke up with him and went back but i i many times left and went and stayed at a hotel for a night and then would go back the next day. Um, there were times that I that I really seriously considered leaving, but I I the first time, and I know they say it takes like seven attempts usually for most people to leave, and I almost would consider those me leaving and going to hotels attempts. But the first time I really left, I stayed away. It was hard though. I I thought about getting back together with him, and and we would talk about it, and then he would always say something that would make me realize he hadn't changed. And, and so I never did it. Thank goodness. You've put it, you've ended this relationship. You, you moved, did you move out or did he move out? He moved out and he went and lived with his parents. And, um, and then I had, so I had just finished my master's in fine arts and was an adjunct instructor. So not making any money, didn't know how I was going to support myself. So I applied to PhD programs kind of on a whim at the last minute and I got into one and, um, I, I filed for divorce and divorced him and moved to Athens, Ohio the next day. And, you know, we still have some shared custody of my son. My son goes to see him every other weekend but I was able to get out of the state, and, and that was really when I was able to kind of start over and, and move on. Okay, so let's let's give us some concluding thoughts, your book, and how you got there. And I do you have a current partner, Kelly? Or, you know, how do you – your emotional – yeah, your emotional sustenance, is it – always internal or it sounds like you may have found someone but not married this person and what does that look like for you well he's moving in actually um next week we've been together for four years it it, we moved very slowly which was just the way that I needed it um and we were not married but we're very committed I'm a little you know, wary of marriage, I think for, for obvious reasons, but he's moving in with my son and I, and he's just very gentle and calm. Um, he's just the complete opposite. Is he, is he he more like your, your dad? He's a lot like my dad, but the difference is that he, he, he's able to be emotionally supportive for me too. Awesome. That sounds amazing. 
Yeah. Oh, he's wonderful. Talking about signs of healing, obviously finding your new partner and finding a relationship that feeds you in the way that you need emotionally. What are some other, um, I guess, moments or signifiers that you feel you're healing or things that you felt have held you back because of your relationship? You know, I think when I really started to feel healed was when I stopped being so angry because for a long time after the marriage, I was just so angry. You know, all this anger I hadn't let myself process during the marriage, I it just came and I started realizing how messed up things were. And and he seemed like he was doing better than me. He, You know, financially, the divorce really devastated me and I was living in poverty for a while. And and I just at this point, like, I don't. I'm, I'm happy. Like I'm doing well and I'm doing well on my own. And I don't even care enough about him to be angry at him anymore. And that has just been the most freeing thing or not being angry at my parents anymore has been a real, you know, I living with anger is, is really toxic. And I remember I did this workbook called the domestic violence recovery workbook and there was a section on anger and, you know, they, they brought up that thing that says like anger is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. And for like five years, I was just waiting for him to die <laughs> while I was poisoned. And, um, and I was angry at my parents and I was angry at him. And it's really hard to live a good life when you're that angry. And, and my anger was earned, like it, it was valid anger, but, um, just with time, and writing my book was really healing for me, telling my story in its entirety. And yes, yeah, so Kate's asking these questions about like, about my childhood and stuff. Like I told all of that in the book, all of it. And it was painful. And there were a lot of times I would write and then I would just lay on the floor and cry. But at the end of it, it was like, suddenly it was something that was, outside of me like it it's in the book now but it's not still stuck inside of me and I mean I do have PTSD so it's not like I'm just totally fine and everything's fine but um I really feel good about my life now that is so lovely and I think we should remind uh the our listeners that the name the title of your book in case they want to find it Yeah, it's Goodbye, Sweet Girl, a memoir of uh, domestic violence and survival. It came out with HarperCollins in 2018. It received really great critical reception, and um, it can be found anywhere that that books are sold. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I I had already gotten the book and read it sometime, as you know, back when it came out. But when Roxanne Gay gave it like five stars, I thought, whoa, you've really made it into the literary world you know the 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 review she wrote of my book was maybe one of the highlights of my entire life (laughs) yes i would imagine it would be and i i just want to thank you too kelly um you went from telling us about not feeling pretty to not feeling worthy with your parents and you've shared like a, a million awesome points a million Awesome isn't the word. 
poignant, powerful, thoughtful, well-crafted. You took all of my pummeling of more questions to, you know, dissect and ask you more. And if we had more time, I'm sure we could think upon, but I feel like we gave everyone a whole, all of our listeners, a whole lot to consider both about you and your journey and how your journey can help their journey and our journey together. So it is my honor and gratitude to have you come on this microphone and share all you did. Um, And we will make sure we put your book up. And I know you have another one under um, about to be released. When's the second one coming out? Well, I just finished my book proposal for that one, so it's getting ready to go out on submission. My HarperCollins has the option on my second book, and they are on strike right now. So, <laughs> Oh, they are. That's right. I heard about that today. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess we're going to be waiting a little bit. But Kelly, is your second book related to your trauma and your experience? Yeah, my second book is actually um, a collection of essays about living with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the the title is The Answer is Always in the Wound. And it's really about living with PTSD, but also healing. Okay, so we must have you back clearly. But let's wrap up to our interview with you was just so powerful. And um, thank you for, yeah, absolutely, Kelly. And Claire, at first, Kelly, thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, we're so grateful for your time and your thoughts and your journey and your where you are now to share it so generously with our listeners. Uh, Claire, can you wrap up the session? Absolutely. We're grateful to all of you who joined us in listening to this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories, and again, grateful and uh, thank you to you, Kelly, for joining us. If you, need, if you need support but don't know where to find it, visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by a wonderful group of volunteers, so thank you to them and thank you again, listeners. And thank you, Kelly, for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. And thank you, Claire. And we close tonight with thank you to Kelly and to all, uh, all of our listeners. I encourage you to please continue our journey in self-care, as Claire said, but also the empowerment and the courage. I, w- I was thinking my usual closing just says tune in again but i i hope each and every one of you as you listen to each episode will take something and maybe journal with us and write down something you think is relevant to your life path and your own journey to help yourself or someone you very deeply care about uh we i'm realizing how much we've already done and how much we can do to really support that process. So, Kelly, again, thank you. And we will definitely invite you back for your book number two. And, to yeah, to all of our guests, thank you and take care. <laughs>